You are listening to the By His Grace podcast. I'm your host, Misty Phillip, and I'm so glad that you are here with me today. You are going to love this conversation that I have with Pastor Lucas Miles, who is the author of The Christian Left and Woke Jesus. Lucas is a dear friend and someone who stands on truth and the Word of God, and I am just so thankful to have him back on By His Grace this week. Faith-based podcast to help you grow spiritually with podcasts from Christian thought leaders such as Christine Kane, Lisa Harper, Taryn Wells, and Bob Goff. You can hear podcasts on religion, culture, family, entertainment, and so much more. Access More gives you a safe space to find inspiring conversations about faith. Start listening today at accessmore.com. Thank you for listening to this episode that is part of the Spark Media Network that can now be heard on the Edify app. Lucas Miles, welcome back to the By His Grace podcast, my friend. How are you? Misty, I'm doing great. It's good to see you. Yeah. Since we last spoke, you you now have a, a, a television series that you've been working on. I would love for you to tell the listeners about that. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate you asking. So the, the show is called Church and State. We just dropped first season on Epoch Times. Uh, so it's behind the paid wall. But I'll tell you what, it's worth if that was all you watched on Epoch Times, it would be worth some signing up and subscribing. But of course, there's all sorts of phenomenal programming on Epoch, but we're, we're really just thankful to be on the platform. We did 12 episodes for the first season and, and hit all the, the hot button, hot topic issues from churches and drag queens to the, the Roe Ro v. Wade conversation for the summer and uh, attacks against churches, I mean, persecution around globe against Christians. We, we had a lot of really big topics and um, I actually just got word, I'm able to announce this, that the show won program of the year for the national religious broadcasters of all Christian media. So that's going to receive an award in Orlando this May. And uh, so we're super excited about that and, and gearing up for hopefully a second season here. That's amazing. And I can't think of a better person to talk about church and state, which is why I'm so excited to bring you back on to talk about your upcoming new release book. You know, woke Christianity, right? I mean, let's just drop the mic there. Yeah. 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 It's, you know, woke, wokeism is a problem. And, and I really wanted to write the, I wanted to write a definitive resource really for people to be able to, you know, explore this and, and learn about it. So the book, I actually got an early copy here. So I think this might be the first show I've revealed it on. I'm not a hundred percent, but I think so. So here is the book. Woke Jesus, the False Messiah, destroying Christianity. So got kind of a nice spicy cover there. And it's a hardback. It's my first hardback book. So super excited about that. And we got endorsements from Metaxas, Eric Metaxas, Seth Dillon from Babylon B, John Cooper from Skillet, Lindsey Keith from Newsmax, Kevin Sorbo, Abby Johnson, a whole lot of others. And um, you know, I I I start in this book, I talk about, I actually quote Irenaeus, the early church father, and he wrote in his book Against Heresies, he said that. The reason why the first century church was not able to fully refute Gnosticism is because they didn't understand it fully. And then he writes 600 pages in order to help the church understand Gnosticism. Now, my book's not 600 pages, but I really, in that same spirit, I wanted to produce a resource 
that could help the average state Christian as well as the, the church leader, pastor, conservative thought leader, really be able to understand the theology behind wokeism so that they could, could stand up against it and they could they could discern when it's being presented. Because sometimes, as you know, it's very sneaky and kind of below the surface. And until you ask the right questions or, or in that right moment, it's hard to always tell where people stand. So uh, that's really the heart behind the book. Yeah, that's amazing. And I want to dig into that a little bit more. So progressive Christians are making a case that Jesus was woke himself. I saw a sign on a lamppost the other day leaving my neighborhood that says, Jesus wears a mask. And I'm like, does he really? Um, <laughs> do you believe? Does that, he? Yeah. Does he? <laughs> do you believe there is any support for wokeism in the Bible? I would say 100% absolutely not. And look, the left loves to cherry pick verses and they're going to grab, you know, when protests are happening, they're going to talk about Jesus flipping over tables in the temple and and trying to use that to justify uh, destruction of cities by, you know, groups such as Antifa and BLM. When, uh, you know, when you have people talking about illegal immigration and, and, you know, rightfully, you know, speaking about how that's illegal and how that, you know, really should, if you're the first act that you commit by coming into the country is illegal, how good of a citizen in the nation are you actually going to become? You know, they're going to talk about Jesus was an immigrant and and these sorts of things. And But it's always skewed. It's always twisting these passages. And, and this is where, you know, you know, because, I mean, can we talk about all of Scripture? Can we talk about heaven and hell? Can we talk about, uh, you know, depravity of man? Can we talk about, you know, repentance? And the answer, of course, when you're dealing with, well, you know, progressive Christians is no, you can't. There is no room for that. It's going to be systemic sins as opposed to individual sin. There's going to be really no need to talk about repentance until we fix the the, the societal problems. There's not really, we can't hold, expect anybody to be held accountable to those ideas until we, we deal with, you know, this white hegemony behind everything. And so I, I think that, you know, that, that I get that there's really, you know, um, you know, kind of interesting arguments that are presented on platforms like TikTok and Instagram and social media by woke Christians. But when you really start holding scripture up to this, it just doesn't, it doesn't stand. And, and I think without a doubt, scripture teaches personal responsibility. It teaches personal stewardship. It teaches, you know, a, a clear need for personal repentance. It teaches that there's accountability for our actions. Yes, the grace of God is, is you know, beyond comprehension, but his grace does not eclipse truth. They both go hand in hand. And ultimately, we are called to awaken to the gospel, but not to be woke. That's right. And that's uh, something Peter and I have been talking a lot about is it's grace and truth, right? It's not just grace and it's not just truth. And if you get on either side of that ditch, you can have problems, but it is truth. There's love and truth. You can't have truth without love because I think a lot of the left is just like love and accept the sin, the sinner. But there's other sins that if I said, hey, Lucas, you're you're having an affair. Oh, I just love you and come to church. No, I would say, Lucas, you're having an affair. What are you doing? Like, don't, you know, you would call that sin out, but for some reason, 100%. only some sins can be called out. Yeah. And it's, you know, when you see this, like I was actually talking with somebody about this earlier today is that, you know, within the, the interesting thing about, about progressive Christianity and what I call in my last book, the Christian lab is that there is an identification and an embrace of sin that is part of my nature. So Within, you know, more orthodox Christian thinking, 
what we would say is that essentially that uh, that that God created man, that man fell, that sin, although it is present and inherent in every single one of us, that through the redemption of Christ, that sin is not sin is not who I am. It's not my it's it's not the ultimate you know defining uh, definition of my being. But it's only through the cross that I'm able to kind of break away from the bondage of sin and death and find that freedom in Christ and that adoption into sonship. And so within progressive Christianity, though, what you see is that there's actually, there, there's two things happening. One, there's sort of this total, you know, uh, uh, ignoring of sin, that, you know, sin doesn't matter. It's, you know, it's, it's almost universalism for a lot of people. And and because there's not really a whole lot of talk about heaven and hell, and it's more of kind of this terrestrial Jesus, this this social organizing Jesus, rather than the savior of the world, there, there doesn't even need to be much conversation about that in general. But the other part of that is you see certain sins, like, you know, maybe sins of, of you know, you know, if somebody's in LGBT movement or trans or something like that, that's all of a sudden, this is the way I was made. This is the way I was created. It's the born this way sort of argument. So what you're doing at that moment is you're actually not only, not only, uh, um, you know, uh, essentially shrugging off your, um, the, the, the personal responsibility that you have to repent of sin, you're also then blaming God for creating you in sin. And so it's, it's, it's doing both of those things. And there's a lot of complex arguments, again, that people are going to build around this. But, but again, ultimately, there is, there is zero, zero proof in Scripture um, to support that, you know, that Jesus would be, you know, pro these lifestyles or would condone, you know, these, these various, you know, perversions and things that we're seeing today. And again, this doesn't mean that we stop treating people with love and grace and dignity and respect. That should be there. But that doesn't also mean that we have to accept these behaviors. We, you're able to call something sin and still love people. It's a lost art, but you're still able to do that. That's right. That's right. I, I agree with that completely. Now, what about the origins of woke Christianity? Because we know there's nothing new under the sun, but I think what we're seeing is a kind of a new twist on things. When did this all sort of come into play? Yeah, so I appreciate that. The, the, the history of this, there's a lot to unpack. And so, you know, really what I do in this new book, Woke Jesus, is I start, um, you know, really in the 1700s to kind of work my way forward. But we can't just start there because I, I referenced Gnosticism earlier. Uh, wokeism is sort of a, uh, a form of neo-Gnostic ideology. It, it goes back to that. The, the two earliest heresies to face the church were the Judaizers, which were basically Pharisees that that uh, identified with parts of the gospel and identified parts of the message of Christ, but they brought with them sort of this Pharisaical you know framework, and they were trying to hold Gentiles and others to the same level of accountability and, and really create you know salvation by works. With the other side of this, kind of the progressive half of the heresies that were taking place at this time was the Gnostic framework. And, and Gnostics, you know, they weren't, there wasn't, there wasn't a Gnostic church at that time. Gnostics kind of infiltrated Christian churches. And if you wanted to find a Gnostic in the first or second century, you would go to a church because that's where, that's where they were. And so they sort of blended their way in much like the Christian left has done today, you know, in, in specifically uh, America and other parts of the world. And, and the Gnostics were sort of this progressive representation. They, they believed that really all of creation was evil. And that as a result, they didn't give a lot of emphasis on personal behaviors. So because they, and, and, and literally they would say things like that, that uh, Yahweh subjected the creation to a systemic oppression 
through the act of creating them in this fallen world, and that as a result, they believe that Jesus came to free us from Yahweh. So they, of course, did not believe in the Trinity. They separated Jesus from the Creator God, and and they they believed that Jesus was coming to save us. And how did he do that? According to the Gnostics, it was through enlightenment. It was through a greater understanding. In fact, there's one uh, sect of Gnosticism that, that called Jesus, Jesus the Luminous, because he woke Adam. Literally, their words. <laughs> and so, you know, you had this idea of wokeness was happening even in the first, second, third century, you know, through Gnosticism. And then we see sort of this, uh, uh, you know, we see Christianity spread and take off. But in the 1700s, there's kind of this resurgence. And, you know, myself and others were indebted to, you know, uh, thinkers like Michael Fallon and James Lindsay have put a lot of time and energy into, you know, exploring some of these concepts. I reference these guys in the book of, of, you know, some of the work that they've done to, you know, talk about the connections with Hegel and Kant and other and other philosophers during the Enlightenment and post-Enlightenment period. Um, but but what happens after that in the church is really where I concern myself the most. And and what took place was a thing that was known as the, the quest for the historical Jesus. And so uh, most of these were German theologians that after the work of Kant and Hegel and others, because basically what the Enlightenment did was it 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 sort of defined how we got truth, or at least how we thought we got truth. And instead of the Bible being absolute truth, it now all of a sudden became uh, logic and reason were sort of these these higher you know uh, you know they were they were weighted more you know in the search for and the quest for truth. We see the scientific method born out of that. We see Darwinism. We see you know a lot of things that are that are kind of given birth during that period. And so the church was faced with a really interesting conundrum, much like what we saw in the seeker-sensitive movement and and sort of the the launch of uh, um, you know uh, uh, sort of this 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 post-Christian revolution that takes place after that. And basically, the 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 ethos or the um, the framework of the world at that time, uh, what the Germans would have called the Zeitgeist, is is that that miracles can't happen because they're not logical. So as I'm reading scripture, trying to find out about Jesus, and I see a miracle, I know that that can't be true. That's mytho-history. That's that's uh, uh, that's legend. That's somebody else added it in. It can't be the original Jesus. So there was a movement by these German theologians to try to keep the church relevant, because people were walking away from the faith once they realized that this is, a, you know, what they perceived to be a bunch of, you know, myths and old wives' tales about, you know, Jesus walking on water and being raised from the dead and everything else. So they started kind of crafting a theology of a more humanistic Jesus. They they elevated the humanity of Christ over the divinity, and they would call these uh, Jesus biographies. And they they there was literally hundreds of these biographies of Christ that were written. And and you know some of them are ridiculous. And and I kind of point out some of the ludicrous ones in the book. There's one where the individual is talking about how that Jesus didn't really walk on water; he was walking on a raft. And there was he was floating on a raft through the water, and the disciples couldn't see it. And so when Peter stepped out, he first stepped on the raft, and then he fell off the raft, and Jesus had to lift him back up. You know, so they have all these like elaborate, you know, kind of uh, um, you know twists to the message that they're trying to put in there with no basis of anything in Scripture, uh, trying to justify why there's miracles in the Bible that are discussed, and that they're not really miracles; they just appear to be miracles. And so, you know, Jesus had a group of monks that were in a cave baking bread. And so he's, you know, feeding the 5,000. They're feeding this out to him through a hole in the cave that nobody else can see. I mean, just ludicrous things. 
But all of this started building momentum and adding together, getting to the point to where we started seeing the birth of, of really, you know, progress, what we could call critical theology. And, and, and that is a deconstruction of the biblical text to try to get to the true, the, the true gospel behind the gospel. And the result was a social gospel in the early 1900s, a terrestrial Jesus, a, and, and ultimately, you know, a, 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 a split, a deviation. And now all of a sudden you have two different Christs that have appeared. You have the Christ of Scripture and then you have this humanistic Jesus of progressive theology. And, and that is the Jesus that was picked up by liberal theologians, brought into you know the 1900s. And I mean, I could work my way further, but you start getting the idea of this, this, this didn't just start with Obama. This didn't just start you know with, with Rob Bell. This has been going for a really long time. And when you see how it lays upon itself, and I trace it the whole way up until modern day, it's it's fascinating and it's no surprise really why we are here but now that we are here we have to try to figure out what we can do about it absolutely that is that is critical well first of all i think you made a point earlier we have to discern we have to discern it first yeah. right because some of it is very subtle and we have to know the word of god and what that says and put our stake on the word and then we can discern truth and then we can address the progressive ideology so in the book you talk about several iterations of jesus that are presented mm-hmm. by various theologians we just talked about a couple of them, but two of them that you discuss were the black liberation theology, and then the yeah. the Aryan is it Aaron or Air? I don't know. No, Aryan, yeah, 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 the, Aryan the, the, theology, yeah. The, the Jesus that was preached by the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. So yeah, it's really interesting. So um, you know, liberation theology was well. Let me back up. W- what you see in all of this is, and this is what we always have to be, you know, we're talking about discernment. How do we find this today? Well, what we're always looking for is we're looking for what are the modifiers or what I call the theological hitchhikers that have attached themselves to the gospel. And so, um, you know, after uh, kind of the the, the, the birth of, of critical thought, Karl Marx, um, you know, going into the Marcuses and the, uh, um, you know, all of the Frankfurt School and this sort of thing, you, you started seeing, uh, again, this resurgence interest in the church on the social gospel. And so uh, there was a Catholic priest named Gutierrez that in, in um, Latin America that he basically um, uh, created this, this modification or this morphing of Catholicism and Marxist thought, and that became known as liberation theology. Liberation theology is preached in a good deal of Catholic churches today. Not all Catholics are liberation, you know, uh, um, Catholics, but a lot of them are. Mother Teresa was a liberation theologian. The current Pope is a liberation theologian. But liberation theology is literally a blend of Catholicism and and Marxism, and it's it's not the gospel. It, it is it, it's it's anti you know, Christ in many ways. And again, I'm not, that's not an attack against the Catholic Church. That is an attack against liberation theology. I want to be clear on that. So what happened after Gutierrez, the same sort of framework jumped into America in the form of what's known as black liberation theology. So like Gutierrez, the founder of black liberation theology is a guy named James Cone. He grabbed a hold of Marxism and kind of brought that in. And and there were some other thinkers that, that were very influential in his in his world, and and Cone, you know, in his defense, had had um, you know lived at uh, sort of a height of segregation, went through a lot of uh, um, you know experienced a lot of prejudice and persecution against him for you know due to the color of his skin, and and I don't want to minimize that, 
but you know that that experience does not does not justify where he went with you know creating this framework and so black liberation theology he would say things like you know you have to kill the white god and the white jesus that you have to that jesus you know until somebody recognizes that jesus is black they can't come to god that if you have to throw a molotov this is one of the, I think, the most extreme if you have to throw a molotov cocktail in whitey's storefront in order to do the will of god it might not be the best way but he says but one has to start someplace and so, you know, he promoted violence, everything else with what he was doing. This guy was a tenured theologian at Adrian uh, uh, University up in Adrian, Michigan. And for years, uh, passed away, I think, around the Obama administration, uh, was brought in by Obama, you know, was awarded, you know, kind of this, this lifetime legacy award. And, um, you know, he, he is beloved by, by many within progressive African-American churches. And when you, st- I mean, I've read virtually everything I can get my hands on from James Cone and putting this book together. This is not me reading this in encyclopedia. I did the work and getting in here, pulling this apart, seeing it. And and it's interesting, like, you know, so for Cone, he taught a, he, you know, he presented what he would call as a black Christ or a black Jesus. And, and um, you know, this has morphed into multiple things. And if somebody thinks critical race theory, but with a theological lens, that would get you close to what um, black liberation theology is. Simultaneously, only about a decade apart, you have kind of this, uh, um, this, this. Uh, uh, you know, prior to this, you have in Nazi Germany with the Third Reich, you have the Aryan Christ. And so, um, what I do in the book is I sort of overlay these two, because of course, rightly so, I don't know, I don't know one person who would not condemn the Third Reich and not condemn the distortion and the presentation of Jesus that was that was you know amalgamated in Nazi Germany and tried to you know used as propaganda for the nefarious purposes of of Hitler and his you know his ilk but but as much as we condemn that i very rarely hear anybody condemning the the same thing happening within black liberation theology if you replace the word white in black liberation theology with jew and and black Christ with Aryan Christ, you're going to get almost identical readings in both of these. They are both a distortion. They're both extremes. And and you know what we see in both of those instances is we see groupings of churches let go of Christian orthodoxy, let go of truth of of God's word, and they embrace these radical ideas. And ultimately, in the case of Hitler, they bowed down to a Marxist state. And and uh, excuse me, I'm about to say a Nazi state, and and they you know they just embrace these things. You know, Metaxas makes the comment of of that there were some that went as far to uh, uh, trade the Bible for you know uh, Mein Kampf and the and the cross for the swastika. And so I don't want to say that that Black liberation theology is you know the same thing as Nazism, but theologically the path to get to those things I think has immense similarities. And so that's something I look at the book. And I really try to look at all these different variations of Jesus. And ultimately, what I want to do is lead people on a quest back to the biblical Christ. Who was a Jew who was from the Middle East. So he probably wasn't black or white, but somewhere in between. And if you. Yeah, look. Go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, if you know, you know, your Bible, you know, your history, you know, you can you can knock out both arguments with just that one fact. Absolutely. I mean, Billy, Billy Graham said that, you know, I mean, he, he had, you know, kind of his famous speech where he says, Jesus wasn't white, Jesus wasn't black, you know, and, and, and ultimately it doesn't matter what shade of, of skin color Jesus had, you know, it, it just doesn't matter. 
the I was on a show once, a very antagonistic uh, kind of debate show, and and I got asked that question, you know, and kind of corner me, and and I, I honestly I felt like I didn't answer it very well, and you know, on those shows, the spur of the moment, you're trying to you know kind of unpack everything you got in your brain, and sometimes you hit it, and sometimes you don't. You know, after the fact, th- this individual was trying to get me to say, was Jesus a person of color? You know, and he would go, was Jesus a person of color? Was Jesus a person of color? Trying to get me to answer the question. And, and ultimately, it, it depends on what you believe is a person of color. And, and you know, because for for somebody that, like James Cone in Black Liberation Theology, Jews weren't considered people of color. So if you consider a Jew a person of color, then yes, Jesus was a person of color. If you don't consider Jesus or a Jews person people of color, then no, Jesus wasn't a person of color. And, you know, but to try to make Jesus, you know, uh, uh, to try to make him a German, you know, uh, folk hero, or to try to make him, you know, a, a, a black African, you know, savior, neither one of those is based upon the true historical person of Jesus. And, and, and you know, one of the arguments that Cohn makes against uh, against Orthodox Christianity is he talks about basically that all of Orthodox Christianity is sort of built upon this this framework of white men, and you know, talks about this white hegemony and and uh, that that's been passed down over the years. Well, like when you really do the work and you look at early Christianity, so many of the 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 biggest church father names that we have: Augustine, Athanasius. Cyprian, you know, these guys, they came from Northern Africa and, and they were, they were not, they didn't look like me. Right. And and so, you know, this, I mean, Augustine, Augustine shaped Christianity more than any other person, you know, post Christ (laughs) other than the Apostle Paul, you know, like, and, and he's from Northern Africa. And so to say that Christianity, biblical Christianity is rooted in white theology is completely asinine. And, uh, and so, you know, this is, but this is, these are the statements that people make. The average person on social media doesn't know this. They hear this, they go, well, that, well, that sounds good. That's a good argument. You know, that person was passionate. They were fiery. So they repeat these same things. You get into all the stuff about, oh, you can't trust the Bible. And it's just been changed over and over throughout the years. You know, and all these things that when you actually study this stuff, you know that that's not true. Dead Sea Scrolls and other discoveries demonstrate that that is, in fact, not true. That's right. Um, when we start finding these ancient texts and they match up with what we have today, you know, virtually verbatim. But but the average person is not doing the work to study that, which means that the average Christian has to do the work to be able to answer these things, because I can't talk to every single person in the world. Um, you know, uh, my other friends out there and other, you know, co-laborers in the gospel, you yourself included, we can't all talk to people, but, but all of us collectively, you know, need have a personal responsibility to be able to be, you know, answer questions in season and out of season, you know, to really defend the faith. Yeah. So I think this is a great segue into my next question, which is, I want to end this interview talking about Christian nationalism. And, you know, so commonly Christians who support God and country are labeled Christian nationalist. And I have a feeling that you and I probably uh, have similar thoughts, but I want to know what you think about that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I love this question because I think it's it's timely. And I think that many in the church have not known how to deal with this. And so um, the, the, you know, the perspectives, uh, the, the options, at least historically, that we seem to have, uh, and when I say historically, I mean in recent years and how people are dealing with this, is the option one is to kind of ignore the question, you know, and just sort of, you know, just hope that nobody asks you, are you a Christian nationalist? Because nobody knows what to say to that. Then you have other people that are, you know, some of our bolder thought leader conservatives that that have a Christian faith. And there's, you know, from what I can tell, strong believers. I know a lot of these guys personally. And, and there's individuals out there that have embraced this term 
And they've sort of, you know, put their hand in the air and they say, that's right. I'm a Christian nationalist. You better believe it. I love God. I love country. And, and, and you can call me Christian nationalist if you want to. Um, and, and then there's, then there's, you know, others that have sort of rejected the term and almost backpedaled from, uh, what seems to be any sort of, um, you know, form of, of patriotism or form of, uh, you know, uh, care or concern for America. They don't, they, they you know, they were, they're trying to distance themselves from January 6th and from Donald Trump and, you know, all the things that, that people have to think of today. And, and the reality is, I think that the question is flawed and I think that the conclusion is flawed. And so, I, I spend a lot of time in my book, Woke Jesus, on this, and I think that, you know, uh, uh, this this is going to be valuable for a lot of people that, that go through it, is I personally don't believe that as Christians that we need any additional moniker or, or um, uh, you know, kind of uh, defining um, adjective to be able to, you know, uh, describe what we are. I mean, we can say believer, we can say Christian, disciple. There's a lot of biblical terms, Christian, that we can grab a hold of. Uh, but I don't believe that I have to take on this term Christian nationalism to defend my patriotism. I am patriotic. I got to, I mean, I'm, I'm on the set right now of my church and state show filming this, but you know, I, I'm patriotic. I, and, and I, I'm thankful to be in this country. I've traveled to 25 plus countries. I've been to Asia, I've been to Africa, I've been throughout Europe, I've uh, been to Latin America. And, and I've seen what, you know, I've seen what nations look like uh, that, that, you know, have an absence of Judeo-Christian values and have an absence of, 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 you know, they don't have a constitution like we have. I, I've, I've seen that and, and I'm thankful I'm here, but here's why I think that this is a mistake for a couple of reasons. So first off, I, I mentioned earlier, Nazi Germany, the, the churches that were, uh, there's two main types of churches in Nazi Germany at, at the time of, of the third Reich. Uh, the one was what was known as the professing church. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer and, and individuals like Karl Barth and others were part of. And, and then you had essentially what became known as the, the German Nazified Church. And so among the, um, uh, the, the professing church, they still held to a biblical paradigm. They held to the word as their, their authority. Uh, uh, they believed it was God-breathed, inspired, useful for correcting, teaching, rebuking, training, and righteousness. And, and they were preaching the biblical Christ. But within these Nazified churches, what you had is they were willing to let go of biblical values. They separated themselves from, you know, once held orthodox positions because they used to hold to these positions in order to embrace the attitudes, the philosophies, positions of the Third Reich. And, and they eventually let go of, of that orthodox position for this new uh, distorted Nazified, you know, theology. And a lot of people don't know how much Hitler talked about Jesus and the church and Christians. If you read his book, Table Talk, which is it's like a 900 page thing, not to be confused with Martin Luther's Table Talk. And it's it's uh, it's amazing the references that are there. He had all sorts of wild beliefs about Paul, about Christians, about Jesus. He hated them almost as Jews, but he knew that he needed them. And his his advisors really convinced him of this. And I think the left today has recognized that they can't win elections without dividing the church. So my my premise is simple. I believe that the woke church in America looks a lot more like the German Nazified church in Nazi Germany. That term, when the media uses it, it's a dog whistle. It's to try to paint evangelical Christians to be Nazis. But the reality is evangelical Christians are much closer to the professing church in Nazi Germany than they were the, the Nazified German church. And what we've seen today is we have seen that the progressive church, the woke church, has bow, you know really bowed their knee 
to the uh, the agenda of the state. And when you look at the agenda of the progressive church and the say the agenda of the Biden administration, there's virtually no difference on their view of marriage, sexuality, gender, uh, no difference on their view of immigration. All these things are identical. Why? Because that particular church, the Christian left, has bowed down to the state and they have they've made the state God. And this is all part of this Marxist substructure that's happening. And so, no, I'm not a Christian nationalist. I don't believe that any evangelical Christian I would, I would ever classify as a Christian nationalist. I believe that a Christian nationalist is somebody that that departs from orthodoxy to worship the state. But there is absolutely no reason why a Christian cannot be proud to love God and love country. But that is different than than changing your belief system in order to pander, you know, to uh, uh, to uh, you know a, a, an ungodly you know um, a, a agenda and administration. Yeah, thank you so much for that explanation because it really irks me when people try to lump everybody who loves God and country into yeah. this Christian nationalism category. And I'm like, it's okay for me to be patriotic and it's okay yeah. for me to love my country. These are good qualities, but God, my love for God trumps all of that. Um, pardon the expression. <laughs> You know, just, Justin Martyr, um, I believe this was him, he was making a defense with uh, uh, the emperor at the time in Rome. And, and you know, he's basically making a case because there's all these accusations against Christians, you know, in, in uh, uh, sort of as the church started expanding throughout Rome. Uh, and, and basically Rome viewed Christians, they called them atheists because they didn't worship all the Roman gods. And they, they only, you know, basically recognized one God. And because that God was, was God in the flesh, they viewed them as atheistic because they were elevating a man over over these you know variety of, of Roman gods that they had. Uh, they called them incestual because they commonly heard Christians calling each other brother and sister. And a lot of times they were married to somebody that they called their sister in Christ or their brother in Christ. And so, and you know, so he's defending these, he's defending Christians to the emperor. And basically this the statement that he makes is, is look, you have to understand, as Christians, we are gonna be the best citizens in your nation. We're going to follow every single order. We're going to do what you want us to do unless, unless what you ask us to do violates our faith. And then we cannot do it. And so if you need to put us to death, if you need to put us in the amphitheaters, kill us or whatever, then then so be it. But, you know, if you would just allow us the freedom of religion to be able to worship the way we worship and don't put an un, you know, just or undue, you know, burden or mandate upon us that causes us to violate our faith, which we've seen happen time and time again from the Biden administration, you know, as mandate after mandate has come out, then, then we're going to be the best you know, citizens in society. And I think that that same spirit, you know, carries on today is that as Christians, we want to be great friends to our nation and supporters of our nation. And we will do that and continue to do that until our nation, you know, violates our faith and asks us to do something that goes against our relationship with the Lord. Yeah, that's so good. I'm so glad you brought that up because that's the way that the founding fathers, they, how, um, how brilliant were they that they thought yeah. through all of these things and really we could, you know, go down a rabbit trail. There's really no separation of church and state. It was to protect the church. It was to protect religious yeah. freedom. But there again, you have to really, you have to know the truth. You have to know the story behind it. So thank you so much for explaining that. Lucas, it's always an incredible conversation. I learned so much when I talked 
to you. Excited about Woke Jesus. It is available for pre-sale right now. So get the book, y'all. You will learn so much and you will be armed with the information that you need to understand what's happening with progressive Christianity and how you can defend it. So thank you so much for all that you do to stand for truth, to stand on the word of God as a pastor, as a leader, and and an author and all the things you do. I'm so thankful for you, my friend. Well, I'm honored to know you, Misty, and uh, to, uh, you know, to participate on the show. And thanks for having me. Thanks so much. Thank you for joining me today on By His Grace. I hope you've enjoyed listening and are encouraged by our guest today. I would love for you to visit my blog, mistyphilip.com, for more encouragement. You can find me on social media as Misty Phillip, and I would love to connect with you there. 